Welcome to my mommy's podcast. This episode is sponsored by one of my favorite companies, Just Thrive Health. They have several products that are a part of my regular rotation and absolute staples in my house. I know I've talked about it before, but I'm a huge fan of their probiotic, which has patented strains of spore-based probiotics that survive longer in your gut, so you actually get the benefit of them. It's a good rule of thumb that if a probiotic can't handle room temperature and needs to be refrigerated, it's probably not going to handle the temperature of your body very well. And many probiotics, while they might have a lot of concentration in the capsule form, aren't surviving well in the gut. And this is what makes spore-based probiotics different and why I use them regularly. These are great to get all the way into your gut and provide the benefits. And it's the first probiotic I've really actually felt a difference from. They also have a new strain with a patented formula called Just Calm that is a gut support for healthy neurotransmitter function. And I notice feelings of calm and better sleep from taking this one regularly as well. I also want to highlight a new product they have, which is a probiotic gummy for kids. I love that their regular probiotics are heat stable, so I can easily add these to even baked goods that are baked in the oven or to smoothies for the kids. But my kids are a huge fan of the new gummy formula, and I highly recommend it for kids as well. You can check out these and all of their products, including their K27, their prebiotics, their immune support, and much more by going to justthrivehealth.com slash wellnessmama. And if you use the code wellnessmama15, you will save 15% site-wide. Again, that's J-U-S-T-T-H-R-I-V-E-H-E-A-L-T-H.com slash wellnessmama and the code wellnessmama15 to save 15%. This podcast is brought to you by Wellness. That's wellness with an E on the end. It's the company that I co-founded to create truly safe and natural personal care products that are safe for the whole family. Our products use only EWG verified safe ingredients, and they go beyond just avoiding harmful ingredients by including herbs and botanicals that benefit your oral health, your skin, and your hair from the outside in. We believe that it isn't enough just to avoid the harmful stuff, that natural products should work as well as their conventional counterparts, and that since the skin is the largest organ on the body, adding beneficial ingredients is an extra way to benefit the body naturally from the outside in. I've been fascinated by oral health since reading Weston A. Price's book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, years ago, and we now have a whole line of oral care products focused on supporting and nourishing the oral microbiome while naturally whitening and strengthening teeth through ingredients like hydroxyapatite, which is a naturally occurring mineral that helps support strong enamel. We have three options of toothpaste, whitening mint, charcoal, and strawberry for kids, plus natural floss, biodegradable individual use flossers, and now new probiotic mints, which are designed to support the oral microbiome and freshen breath naturally. Our products help you have healthier, whiter teeth naturally and without the junk. Check out these and all wellness products at wellness.com. That's W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S-E.com. Hello, and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com. And this episode is all about cleaning up your mental mess and helping your kids have a framework for doing the same, raising resilient kids and finding mental peace. And I'm here with Dr. Caroline Leaf, who has been working in this world for a very long time. She's a communication pathologist, an audiologist, and a clinical and cognitive neuroscientist, specializing in psychoneuroscience neurobiology, and metacognitive neuropsychology. Her passion is to help people see the power of their mind to change their brain, to control chaotic thinking, and to find mental peace. 
And she has written several books. We get to go deep on a couple of them today. And she really walks us through several frameworks we can use with our kids to really help them uh, learn resilience and have a better lens for interpreting when tough things happen to them and having a framework to not get stuck in those emotions. We talk about the problems with how we take care of depression and anxiety and mental health, how the mind can influence the brain, why the brain isn't the cause, it's a responder, and why this reductionist approach has been a disservice to those who struggle with mental health. We talk about the problem with labeling conditions just based on looking at the brain. We talk about what she calls mind management and also the neurocycle, which is a tool that we can use for ourselves or our children to help uh, understand and work through these emotions, how suppression creates imbalances in the brain and the body, the most important thing we can do for our children's mental health that starts with us, how to model mental health skills to our children, why children can interpret body language so well and how to manage our own minds in a way that helps them how to model the neurocycle for our kids and make it part of our family culture, why you can't make your children happy and you can't fix them. We talk about the difference between safety net parenting and helicopter parenting, how most kids are only getting seven to 10 minutes a day of free play, but need three to four hours to in an optimal scenario, why it's good to let our kids be upset and cry when they're experiencing big emotions, and how giving our kids space to struggle will actually help them work through their feelings safely and to shape their own identity and so much more. Very informative episode with Dr. Caroline Leith. So let's jump in. Dr. Caroline, welcome. It's such an honor to have you here. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Katie. It's great to be with you. We've been trying to do this for a while, so I'm excited to be talking to you. You do a great job with what you do. Oh, well, thank you. Yes, I'm so grateful the stars have finally aligned. I think your work is so incredible and so relevant to many of the parents and moms listening today. And I know that there is much we can learn from you. So to start broad, I feel like as a foundational piece, can you maybe walk us through some of the things that aren't optimized and how we currently look at things like depression and anxiety and mental health. And then from there, we'll delve into the parent side of that, the kid side of that, how we can foster resilient kids and so much more. Wonderful. That's fantastic. Good, Great place to start. So around about 50 years ago, 40, 50 years ago, there was a shift in how we look at people's mental health. And that goes for all age groups from children to adults. And the shift was it was focused around learning more about the brain. So there was a good, it was a there was there was good and bad. There's always good and bad and things. And the good side was that mental health became um sort of developing into an area that we started speaking more about publicly and that kind of thing to try and remove stigma and that sort of thing. Those are all great. But what was very negative and has actually created a massive problem is the fact that people became so the research became so focused on learning new things about the brain, which is great as I mentioned, but it shifted our focus on humans and human behavior into a very what we call neuro-reductionistic approach. In other words, it became about the brain. So as we got more and more excited about the brain, so that became the focus point. And that may sound like it's not a problem, but it is a problem if you reduce a person's experiences down to what's happening in the brain. Because the brain isn't actually the cause the brain is the responder. It's not the causative thing. It's the actual thing that's responding. It's a physical structure, very complex, but it's driven by something. Kind of like we switch a light on. A light can't switch itself on. It has to be operated. You've got to switch your computer on. You've got to act, use your computer. That's the difference between the mind and the brain on a very basic level. So your mind is your aliveness, the the, the thing that's switching the computer on, switching the light on, switching the brain on, and the brain is responding. So if we remove that very big mind element out of the equation and we reduce a person's responses to a set of symptoms, 
that are then supposedly diagnosed to be caused by some kind of biological um, irregularity in the brain, some sort of neurobiological, something like a chemical imbalance or some genetic flaw or some kind of brain damage or some kind of, uh, well, let's not say brain damage, sort of damage of a brain that is not functioning like it should. There's something that's different about the brain. When we do that, we are, it's a very medicalizing of misery approach. It's, a, and it's called the biomedical model. So in, in, a, in, in essence, or in summary, med, the medical model is a way of looking at symptoms and um, from the symptoms, making a diagnosis, which then leads us to the biological underlying biological cause and then targeting a treatment or a medication at that underlying biological cause. So diabetes present type one presents with certain symptoms and they can um, test that and you know that it's an insulin problem in the pancreas and therefore you target it at that beautiful for medicine, works for the physical brain, the physical body, but that model has been adopted into mental health and that's the problem because you can't medicalize what someone is experiencing in their life. Whether you if you bullied at school and you and it's a persistent problem and you are very anxious to go to school and maybe getting quite depressed and maybe not able to concentrate at school, that doesn't mean that child has a mental illness. It means that the child is experiencing something process through the brain, the brain and the body are being affected, but the cause is in the environment and not the brain. And that's really, so it's a long answer to your question, but essentially that shift has created what we're sitting with now as is one of the main contributors. There's obviously a multitude of contributors, but it's one of the main contributors to the fact that we're sitting with such a pandemic problem or a crisis in mental health currently and in our children. And that's very interesting because a few years ago, a huge there's a huge survey, various different, very good surveys that are done. And this is a very high level survey that's done on globally on different countries and age groups looking at mental health. And children always came out and adolescents always came out, but especially children always came out as being on the higher end of you know the positive side and, and adults, you know, badly more. It's swapped. And so that's very significant that we see that and we see that we are sitting in the worst time ever when it comes to children's mental health. Now, that is, as I said, you can track it back 40 years ago, 50 years ago, this model was introduced, this biomedical model, seeing people as sort of symptoms of their behaviors, symptoms and then diagnosing. And as we, if we track the research parallel to that, we see that actually things have got worse, not better. And, that, and that's, you know, we're sitting with a worse situation. So if the biomedical model worked that was introduced all these years ago, we should see an improvement. But we've not seen an improvement. Things have actually got worse for all age groups. And it's really got bad for kids. Wow, I didn't realize some of that and how startling those numbers were and that they've shifted in kids. That's really, to me, like very telling of that we need to ask better questions and look deeper into this model. And it makes sense when you explain it that unlike something that's strictly in the physical body, there wouldn't be just a simple singular cause and effect symptom and medication route for this. Um, and because of that, the interaction between the mind and the brain that you explain, I think as a very simplistic example back to, I had, I did some of the neurofeedback and brain mapping a while back and it, as they were doing the whole process, they asked me, you know, has your ADHD ever gotten in your way? And I was like, well, that's the first I've heard of it, so no. Um, but it was interesting that they had just, by looking at my brain, assumed that and assumed problems that I wasn't actually experiencing. And so that kind of made me look at it and go, wow, I wonder if this is happening to kids as well. 
and we know also from, at least from other um, mental health experts I've had on here and from psychiatrists, that obviously the things that affect us in childhood can very much carry on into adulthood. I know I've done a lot of work as an adult to sort of unpattern some of the things that I internalized in childhood. And so I would assume that if we're taking this reductionist approach, especially with kids, this could lead to some longer lasting issues that are going to carry over into adulthood as well. Is that, are you seeing that as well? Oh, absolutely. So there's, you know, the, we know from the the ACE, the ACE studies, early childhood studies, and we, it, there's, it's undoubtedly linked. So what we experience in childhood, unless we teach a child how to manage that, it's going to it's going to move over into adult, it's show up in adulthood in various different ways, physical challenges, mental challenges, and so on. So we do have to address that and deal with it. Our life affects us. It's just as humans, what you go through, it's not about you, it's about you and your environment. And whatever you're going to go through is going to affect you. You said something very, very interesting, though, in, in when they said your ADHD brain. This is now so typical. Just that statement is so typical of a biomedical model where your complexity of who you are as a person, they just lumped and, and put into one category because they looked at um, a pattern in your brain as though it was a um, a biological marker of a disease. So they would have been telling you, they were telling you in essence in that sentence that you have a disease of your brain called ADHD and therefore that's why you are who you are. And that's the wrong way around. First of all, ADHD is not even a scientific category. It is a, it's, it's basically a hypothesis. And I'm not saying that people don't have concentration and learning problems. It's a huge part of the work I've done. But the concept of ADHD also began about 40 years ago. And we were warned by our professors at that time and, the, and scientists at the time saying that 40 years, in 30, 40 years time, we're going to have a problem with people being diagnosed with something that they don't have. So rather than saying I have ADHD or my child has ADHD, rather say that ADHD is a description of behaviors. So it's a word that describes a pattern of behaviors. It's not a diagnosis of a disease. Huge difference in how you look at yourself or look at your child and how a child looks at themselves. You know, and that's really critical. So that distinction, ADHD is a cluster of behaviors that describe a cluster of behaviors. And there's a whole lot of them versus ADHD is a disease that your child has or you have. You know, and even the QEG that, but the neurofeedback, I'm very familiar with all of that. I use QEG in my research. We, with my team of neuroscientists, we still do a lot. I st I've been in research for 40 years. We still do research. We've got many clinical trials running. And uh, the QEG, there's a tendency, this biomedical model takes something as, as um, incredible as, as, as a QEEG, which is looking at the brain, electrical activity in the brain in response to how we think or what we just being alive and says, looks for biomarkers. So it's reducing it down. Oh, that pattern means ADHD. Well, what we've shown and many other researchers in the field have shown is that that so-called ADHD pattern in a QEEG could be the same exact same pattern a moment later in someone who's just, um, some, someone who's just had the most incredible insight, who's just played the most beautiful concerto on a piano or something like that. So you, you can't just say it's one fixed thing our brain waves our electrical activity in our brain is responding in the moment and you can have the same pattern for someone who's in a state of extreme stress anxiety and someone who's in a state in a state of extreme euphoria because they've just created some a masterpiece or something so we've got to be so cautious about this tendency that symptom equals that it's not quite so simple
Yeah. And I think to your point, even the language around that, I feel like might be harmful to children, especially if they're given what feels like a very black and white diagnosis and told like you have ADHD or you have this problem. I think of that as a corollary in my own life when I found out I had Hashimoto's and I eventually learned to stop saying I have Hashimoto's and start saying even I am healing from Hashimoto's because to me, a a diagnosis feels very concrete. And then we often make that part of our identity. But from what you're explaining, this is something that the brain is always probably moving and changing and there's variation. And just because an electrical pattern shows up for a particular person, that doesn't mean that it's going to exhibit in the same way in every person. So I just wonder, are we creating kind of a stagnant, concrete version of how these children see themselves by labeling that as such? Absolutely. I have a whole chapter in this book that we, uh, the, the latest book that I've read, that I've just bought that's coming out, how to help your child clean up their mental mess. Sorry, it's reversed on the camera. But basically, it's a whole chapter on labels with all the scientific research. I write very simplistically, so that's, it's very scientifically based, but it's written that anyone can understand it. But there's a whole chapter on the danger of how labels lock us in and how they remove hope and how there's extensive research showing that when you tell someone you are or you have, um, it's you've got to be so careful how you how you explain that because it's way better to say to a child or an adult, which is what I would do with my in my practice when I, I practiced for 25 years. I don't practice anymore, but I had teams of therapists that worked for me, and we would never say you are or you have. It's more these are the things, these are the kinds of behaviors that are showing up, and let's look at how they potentially are disruptive and constructive, and let's see how we can you know reorganize and change these things. I mean, there's no doubt that people, certain people do experience birth trauma or trauma in the womb or are exposed to chemicals or have a traumatic brain injury. There's the neurological stuff that does happen. But that is, we need to see the neurological stuff. We need to make that distinction between the neurological stuff and then our life experiences and how they impact us. And that that line was very clear 40, 50 years ago, but it's become very blurred. Um, so and now, and so yes, the labeling of a child removes hope it locks them in and it makes a parent very frightened it's scary to be told that your child's got ADHD and then they show you tell you that the brain your brain looks different because there was a very very popular study that you probably have spoken about or heard about a couple of years back that was saying that ADHD brains are smaller and when that when when that study was reanalyzed they had to publish a retraction because it was incorrectly analyzed and incorrect the results were incorrectly presented they were biased and that isn't actually the case but that is one of the most quoted studies that parents often hear scientifically we see that adhd brain looks different to the so-called neuronormative brain and that's very scary to hear about yourself or your child yeah and it seems like the comparison I would make is to like certain areas of medicine where it is that just cause symptom treatment approach. Whereas it sounds like what you're talking about is almost more of like a functional medicine approach to the brain. It's not a like either or it's a yes and let's use this data, but also let's take into account this whole person. Let's look at the other potential root causes that are happening. Let's look at their life experience and what's going on that actually might be the reason for some of this. And let's give them a more empowering ability to address some of those things versus thinking this is a stagnant condition. And I know you've written and talked extensively about this, but can you walk us through your approach and what you see as the answer and the better approach to handling this sort of mental health crisis that we seem to be entering? Absolutely. So um, basically, I'm a psychoneurobiologist, which means psych, mind, neurobrain, biology, the body. So I'm looking at that relationship. Now, it's very established in, in the scientific literature that chronic 
unmanaged toxic stress will lead to physical and mental challenges. And so we see, so what we have to look at when we look at helping a person very holistically, and I like your comparison that you've, you know, the sort of the comparison you've made it more functional, looking at the holistic person. We have to realize two things here. When we look at psychoneurobiology, we recognize that the mind works through the brain and the body. So the mind is always using the brain. So the brain and body are involved in everything that you experience as a human. So this is why the brain is constantly changing. Back in the late 80s, I did the first some of the first week work in my field on neuroplasticity, which is the um, the ability that we have, and, and, and notice how I'm using my language, that we have as humans to change our brain. Our brain can't change itself. Okay, If you did your brain's doing nothing. But because you're alive, you're experiencing life. You are responding to this conversation, to being a parent, to waking up in the morning and going to school. You you are in life. You're active. You're alive. You're thinking, feeling, and choosing in response to that. And that's mind. Mind is aliveness. It has a psychological component, think, feel, choose. It has a biological component, um, which is all of the quantum physics and electromagnetics and all that fancy stuff. But the fact is that the mind is the thing that's driving the brain. So based on that principle, if the mind is driving the brain and the brain is responding to the mind, not only is the mind driving the brain, but the mind is also embodied. So as you are listening to me now, your mind is processing what I'm saying and building what I am saying into the gravitational fields of the mind, into the brain itself, the physical structure of the brain as a tree-like structure. And I always use, use like one of these little plants to, to show the idea. I've got to get out of the blur. Can you see this thing over here? I'm holding up a little plant. Um, so the, this conversation is going three places, in the mind as a, like a field, in the brain like a tree, and into every cell of the body like a change at the genetic level as well as in the structural level of the cell. So that's quite powerful. That means that our psyche is changing our biology. And so do we have power over that? So my approach is looking at how does that happen? How does stuff get into the brain? What is a thought? What are memories? A thought is the tree. The memories are what the tree is made of, all the little roots and branches. What are emotions? What are behaviors? How do they all interrelate? emotions, behaviors, how our body feels, and our perspectives of life are all signals that are coming out of the thought that we built. So we have an experience, we build it into our mind, brain, and body, and that combination of mind, brain, body interacting generates how we show up. In other words, as we are um, in this conversation, we have emotions, we have a bodily response, we have a perspective towards this, and we have certain behaviors, we're interacting, talking, so we can, everything is, is operating like that. So the approach that is more holistic is to look at the human and the in the in, in the environment, child, adult, in the environment, and the stories of their life, and look at how the stories are building into the brain, and looking at the sick and the brain and the body, mind, brain, body, and how they're showing up with signals. So it's actually not as complicated. So think of experience into the brain as a tree, into the body as a change, into the fields of the mind, and then that combines in how we show up. How do we show up? Okay, so let me give you a nice simple example. You pick up your child from school, they get into the car and they are crying, sobbing. They won't talk to you. So their emotions are obviously very upset. So there's the emotional signal that you see. They then, their behaviors, they won't talk to you, but they're kicking the back of your chair. I'm just making something up. And the more you say, please don't kick my chair. I see you crying. They kick your chair more, they cry more. And maybe they throw a little tantrum. So these emotions and behaviors, two warning signals. Then maybe they start saying, ah, oh, I've got a sore tummy, I've got a sore tummy. So there's a response in the body. 
and then their perspective is and you try as you're trying to talk to them they just say i hate school i hate school there's that so you've got all four signals you've got four and that can happen in the first few seconds that your child gets in the car so those are four signals now those let's say that this happens every day for two weeks and then you start thinking hey there's something then you're going on then the teacher calls you in and says little johnny is you know not concentrating and it seems to be very upset all the time and is really you know constantly wiggling in their seat and is not asking and answering questions and I'll get whatever so you get a bunch of emotions behaviors um he's always complaining of going of a sore tummy and going wanting to go to the bathroom and his perspective he seems to be hating school so now we've got this thing oh my gosh and the teacher says, "Hey, you better go see a school psychologist or go to the psychiatrist. You go to the psychiatrist. They ask you a fifteen-minute survey if you're lucky, and it's basically a tick checklist. And very often, it's done by the PA, not even the psychiatrist, and they just look at the little report. And before you know it, oh, that's ADHD, clinical depression, or one of the other, or combination of the two. Let's put them on medication." The messaging to the parent is that if you don't do this, if you don't get to the psychologist, psychologist or psychiatrist, you're a bad parent. You know, this is this is something you have to prevent. This is like diabetes. If you don't give the person type one diabetes insulin, they can die. You know, you have to, and because of the mix up of the medical model with the human story, which is incorrect, as I've said, we, a poor parent is receiving all this confusing mixed messages. Oh, I'm a bad parent. I've got to get this done. This is this is going to help my child. And you know, my heart goes out to this because I worked so long in this field and I saw this happening as my career was moving forward. And how many parents write into me and comment about this and that sort of thing. So, and I'm sure you heard the same thing. So, what can we do? What can we do differently instead of going off to the psychiatrist? And I'm not saying don't go to therapy, but I'm saying do this first. Your mind is always active. When you're asleep, it's even active. It's your aliveness. Your child's mind's also always active and you're alive. So your child's experiencing something. Their experience is not something you can fully understand because no one understands, even your own child, you you may know them, but you still don't have, you you don't have an inside of you into the experience because you only know your own experience. You can only go on what they say and the signals they provide, but their, their experience is their own unique thing. So that's the first thing. Look at your child's experience as being absolutely unique to them and, and, in, and in need of validation. Let them, we want to give them the tools to talk about their story, talk about the experience. Secondly, their ability to experience is this mind thing. You can go to the therapist and the coach and the psychiatrist and psychologist, but you're not with them 24-7. You'll see them now and then, maybe once a week, maybe once a month, who knows. But you're living with yourself and so is your child 24-7. So what do we essentially need to teach our children? Mind management we need to teach them how to manage their mind in between being able to talk to you if they're at school in between you know while they're playing with a friend in between maybe if you are seeing a therapist because there's some something else going on that needs a bit more attention or there's some deep trauma or something like that that's happening so in a nutshell we want to teach our kids and you can teach a child as young as two. And this latest book that I'm that I'm releasing is, is basically helping parents help a child from as, between ages two and 10. So this book is called How to Help Your Child Clean Up Their Mental Mess. It's for ages two through 10, even a 12-year-old, even adults love this concept. Um, it's so simple to understand, but the one for adults is how to clean up your mental mess. So the two together work very well and I have an app. So there's a lot of ways to learn what I'm about to explain to you and to be my app literally walks you through giving you therapy the new book walks you through giving you therapy it literally takes the 
science that's complex and the concept that I'm going to explain as quickly as I can and simply as I can now and breaks it down into this is what you as a parent need to understand, this is how you say it to a two- and three-year-old, how you say it to a six-year-old and so on. And then there's also images. I've created a character called Brainy. And Brainy, actually 25 years ago, I had a Disney artist create Brainy. We've just had it updated and it's throughout the book. So Brainy is, a, we created a, a little toy as well. So Brainy is this character that walks your superhero that is, and whose superpower is the neurocycle, which is how we manage our mind. It's a, a little toolbox, literally, of how we manage our mind and how we walk this mental health journey. So a two-year-old and a three-year-old doesn't have the language to tell you that at daycare, there's this one little kid who constantly is pinching them or something, they, you know, or, or a teacher maybe who's you know not being as nice as they could or something that could happen. Your child is not linguistically strong enough to be able to give you that exact languaging, but there's, they come home with all these signals, behaviors changing, et cetera, emotions, et cetera. They, this little, con- this, what I've tried to create is a contact point. So if a child picks up the toy, it's the, when you teach them that this is how to talk about if I'm not, you know, if things are, are problematic or whatever, they, that's a way that they can, if they pick up the toy and they point to the pictures in the book, that's a way that you can then form this connection and you know your child's trying to tell you something. So um, what I'm trying to say is that through through the tools that I'm giving you, even have a coloring book with all this stuff, you can then um, do what I'm about to do. You can have that contact point and I'm going to give you some tips on how you can also make this very simple in your life. Okay, so let's come back to the car example and let's come back to Brainy here at link that was super the brainy the superheroes superpower which is the neurocycle and with a child this kind of languaging works really well that you hey you've got the superpower and the superpower is going to help you with you know whatever you're going through kind of thing and, and so obviously this is you've got to teach this to the child you've got to make this a lifestyle and then you can use it at any point the neurocycle is a system i developed over 38 years ago that i still research constantly update and it's a five-step process that is very scientifically researched, that each step is driving the mind through the brain in a way that's actually rewiring those networks of the brain and helping to heal the changes in the body right down to the level of um, the, the brain waves, obviously responding in a, in, in, a, in a more balanced way. And your body, for example, like cortisol and homocysteine and telomeres and all these things in our body that if they're not working correctly, will set you up for disease. And as we know, chronic stress tends to break those processes down, and over time, they cumulatively will land up being a, a potential disease process. So the neurocycle has been extensively researched as a tool that you can use all the time to be proactive and preemptive, and also to deal with things that have already happened. So it's you know both ends of the spectrum, because things happen and things will happen. And to um, drive your mind in a way that brings health into the brain and the body, um, as as while you're managing the mental health. So you first, the before you do the five steps, you need to prepare the brain because if a child's had a bad day at school, you know that they like need to be calmed down first before you can do anything, before you can even talk. So you may need to do something like you know what we were breathing, and there's a many different um, what I call brain prep exercises. I give you a whole bunch in the book. And in my app and I think like breathing one of the one of the ones that works extremely well with kids is breathing in and adults too is breathing in for three counts and out for seven and it's a great way of saying well you even while you're driving you can say okay let's breathe in for three put your hand on your tummy and let's breathe you obviously going to drive the car but your child can do that and then you breathe out for seven and let's make that whooshing sound if you do that 10 second little three seven ten second exercise 
six to nine times, you have calmed down the neurophysiology in the brain to such an extent that you can now connect with that child and tune into that child. So think of brain preparation being a way of tuning in. And as I said, there's a multitude of different ways that you can do this. Okay, then you would move into the neurocycle. And the neurocycle's five steps, gather awareness, reflect, write, recheck, active reach. Each of those names has a brainy character associated with it. So they, they, you, you can literally teach your young kids um, the, 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 the actual, you know, from the pictures, we're doing this, then we're doing this, then we're doing this. Each step is sequentially driving your messy mind, which is what we all pretty much operate in, and you're training your wise mind to manage your messy mind. And obviously, that's not the wording you're going to use. You're just saying you're using superhero brainy, is using its superpower. And the superpower is let's breathe and let's get our brain. Kids love the brain. Young kids will respond very well. We're making our brain healthy. We're going to breathe to, to make us feel that we can that we feel calm or peaceful. And then you're going to do these little, let's do our little superpower activity. And so there's many ways that I give you ideas and and. Uh, ways of doing it so essentially the gather awareness the first step is how you look at those those signals that are telling you something so let's go back to the incident in the car the child's very upset they uh, so that's the emotional so you could even say to the child as they're getting in the car you may just say let's do some breathing and let's prepare our brain or just let's breathe so that you feel better whatever you want to do and you could do this in the car going home, or you could do this once you're at home, obviously, once you've explained this to the child. So gather awareness is, let's. I see you very upset, or I see Brainy's very upset. Maybe you have Brainy in the car, or maybe they you know, they remember Brainy, or there's another toy, or whatever. I, so you can phrase it for them if they don't want to speak, which is very often the case if they're in that state of mind. I see you very sad. You're very upset. I see you crying. I, I you know, acknowledge you crying. You, you're really upset. You're crying a lot. And... You're holding your tummy. Your tummy may be sore. You're holding your head. Is your head sore? You, or you, I can see your, you've got little fists. So you're acknowledging the, the fourth uh, signal. And then you say, did you have a bad day at school? Or did something happen? Or is something making you very, um, you know, sometimes sort of a question. The way I phrase it in the book is once they understand perspective, which is the fourth signal, it's how you're looking at life in the moment. So you could say something like, let's say this is a three or four year old. You could say something like, are you is it are you seeing that it, it's like horrible at school you know are you and what you can do what I've given the example I've given is you can have um when you teach this is to have two pairs of sunglasses one that's broken to get cheap sunglasses and then a beautiful little one with hearts or something and the broken one and you could even have three so you could have it graded so one is scratched one is broken the glass is broken you can hardly see it through and one's this really pretty one and you, when you teach this concept of, of the perspective, you can say to them, which one do you want to put on? Which pair of sunglasses? Do you feel like this? Do you, you know, do you feel really bad? Do you feel not so bad? Or do you feel happy? You know, that's kind of, there's lots of those kinds of examples. And if you've taught them that in the car, you could even say, you know, what sunglasses are you putting on? Are you putting on the, I think, I think you're putting on the ones that are really broken at the moment. So what you've done there is something that's incredibly powerful. You've You've labeled for the child, the four signals that they're giving you, not in a judgmental way, not in a, you, you've created a safe space, you've simply labeled for them and made conscious for them in an organized, systematic, four sentences way that is, and think of those four signals like little balloons, and like balloons have a string, those balloons are attached to something, you don't just show up with that for no reason, you, you're not saying this to the children, I'm explaining this now to you as a parent, 
when however we show up in life, us or our kids, is never just there. It's because of something. So we want to go from the signals as signals as giving us information. And we want to go from the signal and we want to find what is it attached to. So imagine those four balloons are then attached to a thought. And remember I said thoughts can look like trees. So you've got a healthy thought, which would be, you know, kids, I've got all these images in the book and you can use plants and you can point out trees. Kids love this. They respond very well. So do adults. There's the health, there's the unhealthy one. So obviously they're upset and crying. You could say to them, they think there's something not so nice. There's an un, there's a there's an unhappy tree in your brain at the moment. That something happened at school to build an unhappy tree. So they so the signals are attached. When you label those four signals, imagine as you say the sentences, this is moved from the non-conscious, it's moving into the conscious mind. Now we know from neuroscience that when we become aware of thoughts of of what the signals which are information are, are are telling us then you bring the thought into the conscious mind now you won't see everything straight away but what the, the mere act of gathering awareness in that very specific way is bringing the thought into the conscious mind neuroscience shows us that the minute we do that we weaken the bonds this is made of proteins and chemicals and the information is stored as vibrations inside the proteins which make these branches. And I know that's kind of technical, but it's this is how real this stuff is. So what we want to do is loosen the protein branches so we can change the vibrations. In other words, we are that's what mind management is. We find the experience and then we look at, at, at deconstructing that experience and reconstructing that experience into a way that brings you a level of peace. Because what has happened at school to that child is never going away. It's happened. It hopefully won't happen anymore. It may. But the fact is it did happen. So our stories don't ever go away. What we want to do is change what they look like inside of us. So if we don't teach the child to manage that toxic thought through this process of the of, of the neurocycle, which is a system into which you can fit all kinds of CBT techniques and affirmations and all the cute things that you already do as a parent. I'm just giving you the vehicle that then makes the brain and mind and body do what it's supposed to do. Essentially, if we don't, that toxic issue gets bigger and it's undealt with. So on a non-conscious level, the child's actually thinking about it. And, and and on a conscious level, they are actively engaging with it. And that makes it bigger. And over time, that creates an immune response in the brain. And that immune response becomes hyperimmune because initially the immune response is to protect. But then if you don't deal with the issue, like once you, you know, the immune response is to bring in the fighter soldiers and to fight the bad thing and to get rid of it. Um, but if you don't, if you don't find the source, it doesn't go away. So therefore, it, you're, you get a hyperimmune response, which then upsets your hormone system and your cardiovascular system. And so we get that percentage that says if we don't manage our mind, this increases our vulnerability to disease by 35 to 98 percent, which is horrific. So over time, that very first question you ask, over time, undealt with stuff in childhood or at any stage of life will increase your vulnerability to to disease and, and obviously mental health challenges because it tips the scale. So if you think of um, a scale with two sides and a, the, the balance thing in the middle, the balance thing is all about depression actually works for you. Anxiety works for you. Those brain waves, there's no one pattern that's bad. There's a balance. So everything's about balancing. And when we balance it, I said a statement, depression is actually good for you. When it's balanced, it is because depression, anxiety, these are emotions that help us to become humans that experience life. And so what happens though is if I don't manage my stuff, 
Then the dep- scale tip- tips and now depression and anxiety and stress, instead of working for me, work against me. Instead of enriching me as a human, actually now start playing a destructive role. So this neurocycle helps to keep that balance and helps us to stop the suppression because suppression creates this imbalance and the tipping in the wrong direction. So when you teach this kind of thing to a young child, they get better and better the older they get. So the younger we start, but that's never too late because I mean, my eldest patient was an 84-year-old. So I just think if we can equip our kids, especially in our current day and age, the earlier we do it, the better. Okay, so gather awareness. Then once you've gathered awareness, you then start reflecting. Reflecting is focused reflection. It's not just a general. Notice I say gather awareness, very specific, not just be aware. Being aware would fall under brain preparation. Okay, just general awareness or mindfulness. That's brain preparation. But gathering awareness is, okay, what am I specifically gathering awareness of? Reflection, focused reflection. Let me focus on those four signals. Why do I have those? So now you're starting to dig. Third step is you would then write all of that down. If your child's not yet literate, you can dramatize. You can make, oh, I see Brainy's feeling very upset and Brainy's crying a lot and Brainy's got a sore tummy and Brainy's putting on the broken sunglasses. I wonder why Brainy feels like this today. And then you, you, and the child automatically, we all know, two and a three and a four and a five, even a six, seven, eight-year-old will respond very well and will jump in and, and enact. Now, that third phase of either dramatizing or visualizing where you paint a little picture for them to imagine like a little movie in their mind or you draw pictures somewhere, that is creating a genetic change in the brain. So we bring this thing up by the first two steps and the first step brings it up. Second step starts looking at the branches, the branches of a tree, which is the interpretation, how that child sees themselves, more details about the behaviors and the emotions. They're upset and they're frustrated. This has been going on for quite a while. It's affecting their relationship with their siblings and it's affecting their schoolwork and all that stuff. So where did this come from? We've got to go down to the root. We've got to find the source, the origin story. So the writing is now taking us deeper and creating deeper insight. When you write, it's really great and in act, it's really great to just let free flow happen because the more free flow, the more you just write all over the page, throw ideas down, words down, even if you're stimulating and you're writing and they're drawing and a combination, that third phase is getting to the starting to show you what's down and what the experience is and the details, the memories of the experience. Then the fourth step is to look at what you've written, this kind of big messy or all the enactment, all the dramatization, all the pictures, and then to talk about that. This has happened. What can we do about it? What are the patterns? What are the triggers? How often is this happening? What could we do? How can we manage the situation in the moment? We're not going to solve the world's crisis in one year cycle. We this is something you can do this once you understand it within a few minutes. But if there's a persistent pattern in a child's life, you're not going to just one neurocycle won't fix it. If there's a pattern, you're going to have to do a multitude of neurocycles because it's going to take time to get there and time to unpack all the details of the experience and reconceptualize them. And that's a large part of the work that I've done. And I've done, there's a whole chapter in the book helping you with the timing. If it's a little thing, you can do it one or two neurocycles. If it's a, the bigger the pattern, it's more established, more complex the issue, then you're going to be doing cycles of 63 days. And I'll tell you exactly how to do it. And you don't spend long each day. It's very quick. Okay, so that's the big picture in as simple language as I can put it. And it's in detail in all the, in all the resources. Well, I'll certainly link to all your books in the show notes as well as to your online work so that people can find it and go deep on whatever is specific to them or their children. This episode is sponsored by one of my favorite companies, Just Thrive Health. 
They have several products that are a part of my regular rotation and absolute staples in my house. I know I've talked about it before, but I'm a huge fan of their probiotic, which has patented strains of spore-based probiotics that survive longer in your gut, so you actually get the benefit of them. It's a good rule of thumb that if a probiotic can't handle room temperature and needs to be refrigerated, it's probably not gonna handle the temperature of your body very well. And many probiotics, while they might have a lot of concentration in the capsule form, aren't surviving well in the gut. And this is what makes spore-based probiotics different and why I use them regularly. These are great to get all the way into your gut and provide the benefits. And it's the first probiotic I've really actually felt a difference from. They also have a new strain with a patented formula called Just Calm that is a gut support for healthy neurotransmitter function. And I notice feelings of calm and better sleep from taking this one regularly as well. I also want to highlight a new product they have, which is a probiotic gummy for kids. I love that their regular probiotics are heat stable, so I can easily add these to even baked goods that are baked in the oven or to smoothies for the kids. But my kids are a huge fan of the new gummy formula, and I highly recommend it for kids as well. You can check out these and all of their products, including their K27, their prebiotics, their immune support, and much more by going to justthrivehealth.com slash wellnessmama. And if you use the code wellnessmama15, you will save 15% site-wide. Again, that's J-U-S-T-T-H-R-I-V-E-H-E-A-L-T-H.com slash wellnessmama and the code wellnessmama15 to save 15%. This podcast is brought to you by Wellness. That's wellness with an E on the end. It's the company that I co-founded to create truly safe and natural personal care products that are safe for the whole family. Our products use only EWG verified safe ingredients, and they go beyond just avoiding harmful ingredients by including herbs and botanicals that benefit your oral health, your skin, and your hair from the outside in. We believe that it isn't enough just to avoid the harmful stuff, that natural products should work as well as their conventional counterparts, and that since the skin is the largest organ on the body, adding beneficial ingredients is an extra way to benefit the body naturally from the outside in. I've been fascinated by oral health since reading Weston A. Price's book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, years ago, and we now have a whole line of oral care products focused on supporting and nourishing the oral microbiome while naturally whitening and strengthening teeth through ingredients like hydroxyapatite, which is a naturally occurring mineral that helps support strong enamel. We have three options of toothpaste, whitening mint, charcoal, and strawberry for kids, plus natural floss, biodegradable individual use flossers, and now new probiotic mints, which are designed to support the oral microbiome and freshen breath naturally. Our products help you have healthier, whiter teeth naturally and without the junk. Check out these and all wellness products at wellness.com. That's W-E-L-L. N-E-S-S-E dot com. I would say this resonates deeply with my experience. I've talked before about how I had trauma in high school that I had largely suppressed. And because I had suppressed it, I thought it wasn't affecting me at all. And then when I finally did something similar to this process in therapy and just sort of intuitively of trying to figure it out myself, I my body changed, how I interacted with the world changed. It, I was amazed actually how profoundly so many areas of my life changed from addressing something that I didn't even think was a problem at the beginning. But I think this is also really encouraging because you mentioned the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences, and and what stood out to me in that and so much of the other research is 
it's not just what happens to us, but actually more so our interpretation of what happens to us that actually seems to cause those long-term problems. And the exciting part there is we can't always control often what happens to us, but we do have much more control over our own inner process and how we interpret it and how we move beyond it or we don't. And so I love that you are making this very concrete and applicable and giving it as a foundational skill, even to children, because I think this process you talk about of managing our mind isn't something that maybe people have ever even thought to do or thought of as a foundational skill that we can really establish with our kids early on. And I'd love to build on that and talk about the parenting side a little bit as well, because I feel like many parents share the goal of wanting to create resilient kids, independent kids, but that there are many methods that parents will use to try to move toward that goal. And so I would love to kind of go deep on parenting strategies, obviously the neurocycle being a huge one, especially if there's a specific issue we can identify. But from a foundational approach, how can we help our kids build this ability to interpret well and not suppress emotions as a foundational skill and by doing so help them to have more resilience in their life? Um, excellent question. And and also your observations, you know, the, the insight there of the fact that if you have suppression, it, it explodes. And this is so often the case. And I've done some, you know, research as well around some of my in my clinical trials. We've had people that they didn't know terrible childhood trauma. The only way they could cope was to suppress. But it it because these things are alive and living, you can only suppress for so long and then it explodes. And then you know that's when we need to people need to know how to deconstruct, um, embrace process and reconceptualize, deconstruct and reconstruct, as opposed to just, oh, that's a symptom, let's eliminate the symptom. Or let's disrupt the symptom. Like so, so cognitive behavior therapy, for example, will talk about disrupting the symptom and then trying to trying to then build a, a replacement. You can't just disrupt. Disrupt means to become aware of, like like I've been describing. Like you, you became aware of some trauma in, in a child in adolescence that you didn't in high school that you didn't recognize. Once you were aware, it, it was kind of like a disruption. And then from there, you couldn't just eliminate. You had to reconstruct. So with a, that philosophy in mind. I was asked the question quite recently, and again yesterday, actually, in an interview, exactly the same question you've asked. What is, if I had to say the most important thing that we need to do for our children's mental health, I would answer by saying it starts with helping the parent, because the parent is the model. The, 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 a child's level of stress and anxiety and how they deal with life, as much as we don't want to hear this, it really does, is modeled on how the parents, you know, how the parent is functioning. So they, you know, they, they they will pick up if you get this diagnosis from a doctor and you're really worried and you try and hide that from the child, um, they will pick up your concern. They are much better than adults at reading body language and nonverbal communication, which is 50%. I believe it's higher, much higher than 50%. With kids, it's probably about 70% of communication and they're very, very good at it. But the interpretation of it is they'll read it, but they don't always correctly interpret. So the most of the time what they'll do, because you're the caregiver, um, your concern will be read and interpreted by them as, oh, I'm bad. I've done something wrong and internalize it in that way. So as a parent, the biggest thing we can do is put the oxygen mask on, sort ourselves out while we help our kids. So you're never going to be sorted out because it's okay to be a mess and you're going to be messy. And that's the messaging when we help our children that we need to say. So in other words, the the answer to the question of what's the most important thing we can do for parents, it is for your children is, is for you to help yourself. Number one, it's the oxygen mask. Let me get myself working on myself. And then number two, let me model as way appropriate out loud for the children how I'm dealing with my stuff 
because as we know, children do what you do, not what you say necessarily. And then the third thing is actively and constructively working on making mind a deliberate and intentional practice, mind management, a deliberate and intentional practice in your home. So as much as we go to, as much as we teach our kids, we go to brush our teeth twice a day and we do that in the bathroom. We don't do it in the garden and we've got to eat three times a day or whatever. And we don't eat, you know, we don't eat, eat, eat we, we go and cook on the stove. We don't cook in the bathroom, you know, whatever. We have designated times and areas more or less in our homes and our lives. You go to the gym, you go to, when you play ball, you play outside. When you go to the gym, you generally go to a gym or an area in your house that's got that equipment. So this concept of um, when I've got to do something specific, I go to a certain area. That's, this is the part three. A designated um, time and space in your home is a great way of instilling a constant lifestyle of mind management. So I would recommend that you, um, to, um, to answer those three, I'm going to answer three first and then work backwards. First, the first one being the oxygen principle, mask, mask, oxygen mask principle being, you know, as a parent, it's important you work through your stuff. Secondly, that you work model certain appropriate things in front of your kids and that you then have a designated area. Let's start with a designated area. If at all possible, find an area in your house, like you have a kitchen that cooks food, that you can dedicate to, kids love the word neurocycle, or brain, let's fix, we're going to work on our brain, or brainy's area, or you find a name that works for your family. I give suggestions. And if you can maybe take a part of a wall in the kitchen, my sister-in-law did this, and painted that blackboard chalk, and have a little thing of chalk, have some paper, um, pencil crayons, um, sharpies, um, a toy box with some toys, stuffed dolls, maybe a brainy if you get it, the coloring book because it's got scenarios in and blank pages so that you can you know, choose a scenario and you can also write on the corresponding page, a bunch of those kinds of things. And in a little basket, if you don't have a big enough area that you can dedicate a whole area, maybe you can have a basket that can just fit neatly into your, um, into your sitting room or something like that. So in other words, it's, it's just that deliberation of, if you're feeling bad, we go get that stuff. It just trains us to be dedicated. Like we understand, if, we, if your child's learning a musical instrument, there's a dedicated time to practice. That's what I'm. That's the principle that I'm bringing into place here. So then, let's let's say let's uh, uh, let's say that now um, I'm going to go to number two, the modeling one. So the third is third. Third one was a designated area, and I'm going to go to modeling for your child. Let's say that you. Um, are busy in a meeting you're on a zoom like now you've got you said you've got six children katie wow that i've got four so i'm very impressed with your six um so let's say now you've got a dedicated space in your house where you're doing your podcasting and the kids are busy doing whatever they're doing and some are so they're obviously playing and doing whatever and now let's say you've had like maybe technical issues or you've had one podcast after another and you're tired and which is realistic. These podcasting, I know I'm a podcaster myself, it's hard work. Um, and so now then you have other things that are happening in between and you know that there's things for you, you know, the whole things of life, all the, maybe one of the kids is sick, maybe there's a parent who's sick. This is putting a lot of pressure on you. And as you're working, maybe your kids have a huge fight and you can hear them through the door and you have to stop the podcast and go out and sort this out and do whatever and then come back in. And this is all kind of stressful. And you maybe yell at them and say things you don't want to say or you know, whatever, maybe threaten, you don't mean to threaten, but because of the situation, whatever. You finish, you come back inside, you finish the podcast, you can then go out and do a neurocycle with your child and children and say, hey, listen, I was working very, very hard and the noise and it was this was a very difficult day for me. 
and the noise and and the screaming and the shouting and whatever really upset me and made me very frustrated. So these, you know, you've described the situation, but you've now you said I was very upset and very frustrated emotions. It made me yell. I yelled at you, and I, that wasn't nice. And I said things that weren't nice. I said things that I actually didn't mean, and I'm really sorry. We're going to talk about that. And I, my shoulders, look how tight my shoulders are. I, my whole body came up because you said that I got my scary mommy face on. I don't know if your kids ever said that, but we have a, I used to, they called it the Queen Victoria look that I would give my kids. They would say, well, you got that Queen Victoria look on. So maybe there was something like that bodily sensation. I had my Queen Victoria look on and I was just so frustrated with you kids' perspective. So you've labeled the four sentences, you've done together awareness. And then you say, I did that. And then you can repeat the little scenario. Or you could start with the four sentences and say, I did that. I was podcasting this and this and this, whatever, whatever language. You don't have to say much. A couple of sentences, that's a reflect. And then you could maybe walk over to that chalkboard area and, you know, just draw a picture of maybe a cross face or write the words frustrated and um, I've got a lot to do. And just, you know, put your thoughts on the board. And, you know, um, and then you'll see, okay, I've got so many things to do. I've got to get your kids here. I've got to get you there. I don't have enough time for that. This is, I'm just, kind of under pressure at the moment I have to sort out these things so you so you put it all on the board whatever comes up that that your children that's obviously age appropriate some things you would keep to yourself but you know you, it's the process that you want them to see then you recheck and say ah oh, can you help me with this kids love it they'll come in and kids are so full of wisdom even that three-year-old is full of wisdom and they'll say well Look at that, mommy. And they may draw a picture for you of like 10 things on the wall because you can, they count. Oh, you've got 10 things to do today. And look at those 10 things. But but when are you going to eat, mom? When are you going to play with us? When are you going to have a little sleep, mom? When are you going to? And you can say, oh, okay, can you help me? Maybe I've got too much. And you see, you deep bonding, deep connection. You're rechecking and you're modeling. And then you say, oh, this is amazing. What can we do for now? Finish my work for now. Let's let's all go for a walk with the dog. I need to get clear my head. And that's your active reach, your fifth step, which is the little, it closes the, you don't solve the world's problem. You can't solve it in one year cycle, but you've resolved that issue and you're doing something, an action that ends the activity for the day and is moving you in the right direction. And what you've done there is you have acknowledged, apologized, all these great things, created safe space, told your kids all the things we're supposed to do, which is it's okay to say sorry, it's okay to be messy. Even mommy who's an adult gets messy. All those things which allow a child to say, okay, being a human is hard and life happens and things make us mad and we can say sorry and we can even do bad things and say sorry, but those bad things don't mean we're a bad person. You're giving all that kind of stuff that I know you talk about on your podcast, but you've modeled a very sequential step and you could, you've done it in that designated space. So you've now modeled that for the child. So when they now are in a situation where they need to deal with stuff, they can then, they've got a model. They've got, they've got, they, they may come home from school, go sit in that little area, pick up the toy. Then you know that, okay, I need to talk. This is, you go sit down and you initiate and go through age appropriately. And as I said, I can, I walk you through that. Now, within the, it's the first one, you maybe got your own stuff that you do privately with yourself, which we all should do. We should, I spend 15 minutes between five minutes and 45 minutes every day when I'm getting ready, working on something, I'm always in a neurocycle. There's always, we've all got stuff that uh, they'd be trying to change. So, and, and you work in these cycles of 63 days, which I've done the science of habit formation and a lot of research in that area. It doesn't, we don't fix things that are longstanding in a day or in 21 days. It takes multiple cycles. And the general average is about 60, it's about nine weeks. But it means, it doesn't mean you work long, 
it's just the five steps that you do in around about five to 45 minutes for the first 21 days. Thereafter, it's about five minutes a day. And then once you've kind of fixed up that, then you work on the next one. So you need to be working on yourself. The other thing that's very good to work on yourself is, let's say that your children are, um, there's a persistent behavior happening that you just, you've got six kids, you've got four kids, you've got whatever, you've got one kid. But life is happening and you maybe must we do. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's okay to be messy. It's okay. Messy parenting is very normal and very good and we should allow it because it allows us to grow. But you may miss something in in one of your kids and see, okay, there is some sort of pattern emerging. And we mustn't beat ourselves out about that. But you may find that there's a pattern emerging. And the only way you actually notice that there's something going on is one of your children is maybe doing something that's kind of irritating and you're finding yourself reacting and thinking, oh, not again. Okay, we've all done it. It's okay. You can do it. It's you don't have to feel bad. This is part of being a parent. What we need to do is manage that. So you may need to do it in your cycle on your own very quickly when you see that that behavior is starting to manifest you maybe you've got all the kids around you in the kitchen and you see this and you can feel yourself getting reactive. That's when you can, you know, just move away for a second, do something in the kitchen, maybe pack some groceries or unpack some groceries just to create space. And you quickly run through the neurocycle. Okay, I'm getting reactive. Why am I doing this? Get yourself under control. What's my active reach? I'm going to breathe in and then I'm going to handle this, even if you do that in 30 seconds. So there's an example of kind of how you would do those three. One thing I want to really stress is that there's so many beautiful techniques out there in books. You talk about them on your podcast. These things, CBT techniques. I'm not saying throw those out the door. I'm saying use everything. Just put them in the right sequence. Because if you do, for example, CBT is cognitive behavior therapy. There's a lot of techniques like visualization and you know all these little cute things. They're very technique focused. The philosophy of, of CBT, for example, is to disrupt and eliminate that throughout the door. You don't want, you can't ever eliminate something, but you can reconstruct it. But the techniques are very good to use as active reaches. So active reach is your fifth step. So I'm not saying don't throw it, don't use those, because a lot of therapy therapists will use CBT type techniques. ACT is another type of therapy, um, X theory that has great techniques. It's just where you use them. So generally those come in quite nicely around step four and step five. But if you jump straight to a positive affirmation or straight to a technique, it's a band-aid on the wound. You're not necessarily going to treat the, you've got to get to the cause. If you put your hand on the stove and you burn your hand, you don't take an, an, a, a painkiller and keep your hand on the stove. And then keep my hand still sore. Take more painkillers and take more. You you actually have to find the cause. It's the stove is on. Take your hand off the stove. Such a stupid example, but it is. We are so often living in a world of putting the band aid. All these beautiful, fancy looking band aids, but you haven't got to the cause. You've got to get your hand off the stove and turn the stove off. Um, and that's kind of what I'm trying to teach with this concept. And I love that you brought it back to modeling because certainly I've talked about that a lot and my children have been great teachers for me in the importance of that in so many areas of life. And I like that you also brought that distinction of having transparency, communicating your own emotions and by doing so, giving them permission to be able to do that, but in a way that's age appropriate where we're not emotionally depending on our children, but we're modeling the fact that adults have emotions too that aren't always positive and that's okay. And I think too, as examples, 
a study came out recently that said um, a mother's fitness level has a direct impact on the health of her children because of, I would say, this same principle of modeling. And the same, it seems, is very true with mental health. And in small ways, I've noticed this even with my kids where it's much more effective if there's tension or there things are coming to a head with one of my kids for me to say, it feels like we're both having some frustration right now. And instead of saying, go to your room, which I've never liked that, like go isolate because you're having big emotions. I'll say, I'm going to go to the bathroom or go to my room and just breathe for a few minutes. And then I would love to come back and talk to you about this because you're really important to me. And then often just that little mental break, I hope I'm modeling for them. It's okay sometimes to breathe. It's okay sometimes to go work through this and then let's have a loving conversation after. And I love that you even give it more with the steps of the neurocycle, a really tangible way to work through that both for us and also to model that for our kids. Another term I know from your writing that you talked about is what you call safety net parenting and kind of contrasting this with helicopter parenting. And I would love for you to break down that distinction for us because I know parents, we all come from a a perspective of wanting to keep our kids safe and to help them grow into the best versions of themselves. And that often that approach can veer more toward helicopter parenting. And I like your safety net approach so much more. So can you walk us through that? Absolutely. And there's a whole section in the in the book on that as well. Um, so basically, if you think of, of a helicopter, it's hovering. And with um, there's so much pressure on parenting today. Not that there hasn't been before, but it's definitely in an era with social media and, you know, perfect parenting. And these, you, know, you think, oh, my gosh, look what she's doing. I don't think I can ever do that with my kids. And I'm a bad parent because I can't do that. So parents, there's also this almost this 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 philosophy and pressure through and social media has been hugely helpful but it's also got that negative side and I know you talk about that but this pressure of um of I've got to do it that way and if I don't do it that way, I've got to make my kids happy I've got to fix my kids you can't make your children happy and you cannot fix them and the more you try and do that through these wonderful so-called parenting techniques the worse you're going to get it's going to lead to helicopter parenting so helicopter parenting is it comes it can come from multiple sources and generally the first source is in our current day and age i believe is coming from what we are expected to make our kids be in as a parent and if they aren't if your child's a behavior problem it's your fault as the parent if your child's got trauma it's your fault as a parent everything becomes the parent's fault so parents are under the most horrific pressure and that's why i say number one give yourself grace give yourself a chance to neurocycle give yourself a chance number two Tell the kids, listen, this is normal. This is who I am. And then number three, work with the kids, you know, and and in that designated space. So that's extremely important to stop helicopter parenting. Helicopter parenting is this hovering, trying to bubble wrap your child, trying to make sure that that you are doing everything that's perfect for them, that they're going to not have anything wrong with them which is impossible to do. So the pressure is terrible. It's kind of like not letting them have sufficient free play, uh, which is the, the average child is getting seven to 10 minutes, I think it is, of unstructured, unsupervised free play. And they need around three to four hours a day for decent cognitive and brain development and independent development and that kind of thing. And hovering, hovering uh, helicopter parenting tends to be very, everything's structured, everything's organized, every moment is organized. Every, trying to not let the child, if the child's upset, trying to not let the child be upset, let your child be upset. If your child is crying, as long as they're not hurting a sibling, hurting themselves, let them cry. Let them go to that. That's why I say have the designated space. If you need to cry, let's go sit there. Let me give you a hug. Here's Brainy. What do you need? Go and cry. Not stop crying. You know, it's that kind of thing. 
It's let them cry, let them feel safe, because if you let them cry, they're going to stop crying pretty quickly when they know it's safe, that kind of thing. So safety net parenting is looking at the all the scary things of life in a very different way. The only way your child can get through the scary things of life is if they have the skills developed. Helicopter parenting doesn't allow the skills to be developed because you're doing too much for the child and they're not getting enough um, of the time to wire the networks in their brain. That's what a helicopter parenting is stopping that. So they don't have fully developed networks of resilience being unmasked and developed in the brain. A safety net, if you think of going to um, like a um, an acrobatics show, you're going to have the tent, tent, you're going to have those poles that go really high and you're going to have those little platforms and you're going to have a net underneath and the acrobat climbs all the way up and there's maybe different levels and then they stand on the edge and then maybe they've got a rope around them um, maybe some do, some don't, and then they do these different things and they swing and they catch and do all that stuff. And there's a net, so they fall, the net catches them. That is safety net parenting. You want to let your child climb up. So to think of different levels. If they're young, they're going to climb to that level and they're going to walk along and on along the tightrope or the the whatever it is, swing, whatever. They're going to do the stuff, but you're there to catch them when they fall. So it's allow them to do it, to make the mistakes, to cry, to fall, to be upset, to have problems with friends. You're there when they come to you. You're not there to take it away. You're there to help them reconceptualize it. You're there to help them deconstruct. This is what's happened. This is going to happen again in a different way. How can we reconstruct as opposed to that's bad, go jump in, fix the thing for the problem, move, go to the teacher, remove the source of the problem. You can't do that. So that's what safety net parenting is. And as scary as it is, you watch them climbing up the ladder and going to the different levels, you have to let them do it because you're always at the bottom and you can catch them when they fall. And that goes into, I've got adult children. And still, that's even applicable. You want a parent, always a parent. It's still applicable. They they have to make those mistakes, but you're there to help pick up the pieces. So if you've created an environment and a safe space where a child feels comfortable coming to talk to you, you've you you're creating safety net parenting. Yeah, I think that's such a beautiful explanation. And I know you talk about that this is actually such an important concept of giving them the space to have that struggle, to have failures, to feel impatient, to have to learn these skills. We can't just gift them resilience and gift them patience and gift them kindness. These are actually all things, the skills, actual skills they have to develop through times when they feel impatient. And then they get to learn patience through it, through times when they feel overwhelmed or frustrated or angry, and they get to learn resilience through their own journey of working through that, not through us taking away the journey. So I love your approach to that. And I know that there's so much more in your work that we can go into in a one-hour podcast episode, though perhaps we can do a follow-up one day with questions in more detail. But I'll make sure we link to all your resources in the show notes so parents can continue to learn. A couple questions I love to ask at the end of interviews, though. The first being, if other than your own, if there's a book or a number of books that have profoundly impacted you personally, and if so, what they are and why. There's a number of books, but the Lord of the Rings series is something that has been very big in my life and the life of my entire family. So our kids, we've read them together. We've watched the movies. There's just so many lessons there that that I, I love it. There. I love that series. And lastly, any parting advice for the listeners that could be related to everything we've talked about or entirely unrelated life advice that you find helpful? I think that's what's what's really important is to realize you can't change what's happened to you. You can't change a story, but you can change what it looks like inside of you. And taking that one step further, you can't change your children's stories. You can only help them to learn how to manage and change the stories within what they look like inside of themselves. 
Beautiful. Well, Dr. Caroline, thank you so much for the time today. I know I've learned a lot. I think this is such an important topic and I love that you've dedicated so much of your life to helping individuals and parents in this whole process and giving tangible tools for people to improve in their own lives. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. I've loved it. Me too. And thanks as always to all of you for listening and sharing your most valuable resources, your time, your energy, and your attention with us today. We're both so grateful that you did. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.